She pulls out a medieval figurine made of maple and pine and bound with metallic strings. I realise she is intent on producing the only alchemical equation that has been proven to be truly possible. While she's tuning her violin, I am hearing a range of vignettes drawn from a wide range of human experiences. I hear haste, lust, faith, fear. For a moment there is childhood laughter, then there is a eulogy, and then a certain boulevard in Vienna. She twiddles the knobs and settles on something wistful. If I blur my eyes, I see her bow as a sort of sword, a weapon set upon creating sweetness instead of violence. She wields it not to draw blood, but to make the wood yield sound and to offer respite. I focus again to see her fingers flex and relax, dancing on the neck. The noise quivers up the fine grain and shines like when the sun breaks through a curtain of clouds. It's just the careful slashes of horsehair on a quartet of ribbed cords made of alloyed metal, but in it I hear incidents, doubts, merriment. The fine tips of her fingers caress the strings, create all this through pressure and release. And I wonder, does the fact that her fingerprints are unique make a difference? Of course it does. Such is magic. Such is music. They use the word play for a reason, and when she plays her instrument, this is the deepest expression of her personality. Even if she is performing a composition written by some bloke on a different continent several centuries earlier. The followers of Pythagoras were said to be so fixated on hearing the most infinitesimal variations in sound that they were accused of eavesdropping on their neighbours. But maybe they were onto something. Perhaps it is in paying close attention to such phenomena that we let the universe touch our minds, titillate every nerve ending inside us, and meet our hearts. Here in the forest, she lays down her blade. The trees arranged in a casual amphitheatre gently echo back the final notes. And as she packs the violin away, she relates to me a dream she had recently. I was in the ocean, she said, when I saw an orca. I swam fast towards it in a kind of spiralling motion, like I'd made myself into a torpedo. As I got nearer, I could hear that the orca was making a series of ethereal sounds. It was the most beautiful music I'd ever heard. But whenever I was close enough to it, the orca would use its flippers to bat me away. 
yet I kept trying, swimming towards it, until I woke up. At different stages throughout this summer, I've kind of been half deaf. First it was my right side that went, then my left. And then again lately, deafness has returned to my right ear. I've assumed that it's had something to do with swimming. In fact, the left ear was unclogged with a solution of vinegar and alcohol, which I'd been told would do the trick of getting water out of the ear canal. But the right one has felt a little bit different. To tell the truth, I have a suspicion that a moth has gotten in there. My train carriage has been invaded with a variety of nocturnal visitors, but none has been more prolific than a species of scrappy little black moth, which hangs out en masse in the cottage where I sleep. So I reckon one's flown in there during the night and gotten stuck, or else chosen to make my ear hole its permanent address. Anyway, it's been a nuisance. It's become an obstacle, for example, in recording a certain podcast that I make. And sometimes I can't really tell how loud I'm talking. Lately I've had a tendency to mumble, but any moment now I might start yelling. A similar thing happened to me once in Los Angeles. I'd been playing a game with my old friend Niche in the swimming pool of an apartment complex we'd snuck our way into. There was a lot of leaping about, trying to catch a tennis ball. And once we got back to Nisha's place that afternoon, I lost my hearing. And later, at a bar called the Cha-Cha Lounge in Pasadena, hardly able to hear a thing, I lost my confidence as well. Which was regrettable. It was the last time I was ever to see another long-time Californian maid of mine. A beautiful woman named Bingy Santos, who had recently made the sudden transition from psychology student to C-grade actor. She was on a path to a different life, and I'd have liked to have mustered up the courage to tell her that she'd once been very special to me when we'd met in the Mexican desert all those years before, and perhaps to part ways 
with a farewell kiss. But to everything she said to me, I kept replying, Huh? What? And when it came time to say goodbye, she murmured something in my ear, but it was the one that wasn't working, and so I have no idea what her final words to me were. Here where I live in the bush, the main issue has been that I've missed out on a lot of bird watching. I'm not a particularly diligent twitcher trying to tick names off from my list of species, but I do like the proximity of my feathered friends here in the forest, and frequently I'll interrupt myself and my work if I hear a creature making some sort of unusual noise. The raspy bark of a peregrine falcon, the squawks of black cockatoos, any sort of hullabaloo coming from a kookaburra's beak, and the pretty trills sung by spine bills all make me stop and step outside and see what antics are going on in the avian arena around me. But with the sound all muffled, I've hardly paid attention to them. My awareness of the activity in my neighbourhood has been severely limited. And it's amazing how much it's affected me. There's less enjoyment living in the sticks if it's not enhanced by the sounds of myriad birds. At its best, my current disability sets up an alternative soundtrack for me. One which, for example, matches the pulse of the persistent high-pitched call of the crickets creating a rhythmic, fluctuating whistle, a long and undulating wave of sound like something from an art installation. This in itself has made me wonder about my ear, which is a rewarding little meditation. As with much of my body, I find myself bemused by the design of my ear. It isn't exactly what I'd have in mind if I were planning out a mechanism for hearing. And I've noticed that my sound recorder doesn't look much like an ear but it's pretty in its own way. And of course, it's evolved over millennia of use to presumably be just about the best thing we can have for what humans need. So I marvel at its curious curls, the severe edge of the helix and subtle ripples that curve towards the canal, and that funny little knobbly bit of cartilage right above the aperture. Then we have the unseen element, the cochlea's decorative scroll, the tubes connecting the ear to the nose, the tympanic membrane, the auditory ossicles, nerves in the vestibule, all of which are part of the intricate process of turning sound waves into electrochemical impulses. In turn, my summer problem has made me wonder how well the animals around the train carriage can hear me. I know the paddy melons are listeners. They swivel their furry ears around, earnestly trying to suss out the source of any sounds. And often enough they bolt whenever I make a clumsy step outdoors, or cough, or drop some cutlery. But sometimes in the mornings I catch them munging away at grass, distracted, oblivious to my presence. Even still, every few seconds they look up and pivot their ears to see what threat might be near. Obviously, hearing is very important to them. Birds usually have great powers of sight, but they can also have acute hearing. I've read that they catch a smaller range of frequencies than us, but their sound recognition skills may well be better, more sensitive to changes that might suggest danger, variations in pitch or rhythm. 
Even within the hubbub of a flock, they can identify an individual. On the other hand, I'm told that hearing has been a proven ability in only a handful of types of insects. Critters like crickets and cicadas, flies, certain bugs. Their sound receptors are sometimes in strange places. Water boatmen have their ears on the first segment of their thorax. Grasshoppers on a section of the abdomen. Katydids and crickets listen from their front legs. I was surprised to find that cicadas have elaborate ears. Some summers I'd have suggested that they may have made themselves deaf. Mosquitoes too have ears as part of their antennae. And I was intrigued to discover that moths can hear as well. They have simple ears on either their thorax or abdomen. So I could imagine one of those dark moths of mine, one dark night, curious about the mechanism that I use to hear it, or else trying to eavesdrop on my dreams. Too curious for its own good, it has plunged deep into my head, somewhere in my middle ear, and it hasn't been able to get out. And despite the various remedies I've tried, I haven't been able to extricate it either. I have an elderly relative who wears a hearing aid, and sometimes I hear, emanating from the vicinity of his head, a sharp slash of feedback, like a mental rock and roll guitarist has lowered his instrument towards the speakers. I wonder how that is not horrific to have in your skull, and if it doesn't add quite a bit more to his deafness. My own temporary impairment creates other strange effects. When it's quiet, I hear not only a persistent ringing, but imagined mechanical sounds as well. Waking up at a solitary campsite the other morning, I thought I heard a helicopter travelling through the sky, but no, there was no chopper there. Half asleep in the cottage behind my train carriage, I've occasionally thought I could hear log trucks and excavators working in the forest just over the ridge. But this also hasn't been the case. Perhaps I'm prone to mishearing things. I've worked at a few festivals over the years, and so I've got a bit of the old tinnitus. Too much time, standing carelessly close to the PA system, but I can usually ignore this. Yet even when I was younger and nothing impeded on my hearing, I found unusual noises intruding upon the actual soundscape surrounding me. Sleeping upon a purling creek, for example, has always evoked strange imaginings. Often, dozing in my tent... I have eavesdropped on the gossip of conspirators, unable to hear exactly their words but certainly capturing their tone and thus made aware that they were up to something. Likewise, in the currents of running water I have caught flickers of music, submerged songs and static, as if the stream could attract intermittent bands of radio signal. In real life, I've enjoyed hearing these snatches of music as whatever receiver I have has tried to catch the radio waves and had them slip its grasp. And for a while now, I've enjoyed listening to faint melodies, songs interwoven with ambient noise, 
or two tunes that have spliced together in the atmosphere. In such conditions, you can often revise the lyrics so that they're more poetic, abstract, or accurate. Even Stranger was a submerged sound that I found in childhood. There was this song that was popular when I was about ten years old, Last Resort by Papa Roach, a painful take on new metal. And sometimes when I was in my bedroom, I would hear my brother playing this song from elsewhere in the house. But for some reason, the noise that came through my door sounded like a mangle of high-pitched frequencies almost identical to the cacophonic jingle that was part of connecting to dial-up internet. Some of you may remember that. And I don't know, perhaps the producers of Papa Roach had sampled that grating noise as part of the song, but whatever the case, I fell for it every time. I think hearing things wrong has its advantages. It creates accidental metaphors. Puns, a favourite form of oral literature, are often based on misheard utterances. When listening to a language but not knowing how the words are written down, intriguing connections can be made. And in the same vein, I like playing around with what I hear from people with strong accents. Although I suppose I must fall into that category too, since many times over I have been misunderstood, even simply introducing myself. More than one person has renamed me Birth, and several also have called me Bird, including my dear friend in Munich, whom I've known for more than a decade and who still addresses letters to me in this way. For my favourite case of mistaken identity happened when I met this surfer in the US. Hi, I'm Bird, I said. And he looked at me aghast. Buh? Your name is Buh? One morning last April, I woke up and heard that snow had fallen. There was no mistaking that sound, but how can I explain exactly what I heard? It was as if the mountain behind my home was suddenly muted, somehow muffled. The high notes of birdsong fell flat in the drifts. All sound was smoothed over. The snow had absorbed as much of it as it could. It was a quieter world than usual. Like a funeral. Like a cathedral where sounds were hushed by choice and reverence. Where each noise was a simple sketch. And it became possible to discern each one as it appeared. Sometimes, camped away from rivers or creeks, perhaps on a high plateau, when the wind has died down and when even nocturnal birds have settled, you can hear very little. Just the ringing in your ears. But tune that out and you might hear the land as others have told me they can do. You might also hear your blood. Conceivably, you could hear sadness as well, your solitude, some emptiness or possibility. An old man once told me that if you hear your own echo in a mountain landscape, you won't feel alone, but instead sense the suggestion that you are at last in the right place with the right companion. The voice returns to you after all. 
It's as if the circular symmetry of an echo comprises the radius of an invisible circle of belonging. That's what he said anyway. I suspect you'd need to train yourself to a certain kind of listening to hear that. You'd want a heightened sensitivity at the very least. You may wait like a radio signal receiver to catch that sentiment. Perhaps you are moving the dial, scanning through various soundtracks to hear such a melody. Perhaps after all you will come across such a song. It may be faint, but you will recognise it as an old dirge from a foreign land, sung by a woman far away. The words will be garbled. It will sound like several languages at once, but you'll pluck out something from the mix of it all. It will sound like a word you know, for which you will strain for the meaning. That is, after all, one of life's great undertakings. Somehow finding meaning in sound. So my hearing came back, but not in a flutter of shadowy wings like I'd presumed, so perhaps it wasn't a moth, just, you know, the usual gross shit. In my ears this morning I hear the neighbours' tractors. I remember that not all sound is bliss. I don't live within sight of anyone, but in the valley below me work needs to be done. Trees need to be chainsawed, and someone's got to hoon around on a dirt bike, don't they? The countryside is loud, and the bush is an absolute racket. Ravens fart, wattle birds burp, turbo chooks get up to all sorts of indecent things within earshot. It's madder in a city, of course. I will never forget waking up in an apartment on my first morning in Bombay. The array of engines and blasting horns made a wall of sound, added to by the improvised crooning of a pigeon who was roosting in a hole in the bedroom wall. Staying in urban environments, I have heard shouting and loud sex and bad music at late hours. Likewise, I have lived near to the pealing bells of Launceston's town clock, which tolls at frequent intervals with resounding tones and buoyant jingles. A friend of mine admitted she feared every 15 minutes in that dear little city. It reminded her of going to church and being judged by angels or something. I suspected she'd have gone bananas in the small town I once stayed in, in Italy's Cinque Terre. The bells of a church there ran rampant at seemingly random moments while I sat directly beneath on the balcony, 
drinking a beer. I guess it's stressful to be surrounded by so many disjointed noises. Perhaps that's why some city-stranded mates of mine resort to going to sound retreats, entering spaces in which they are bathed by gongs and singing bowls, flutes and bells and didgeridoos. Tension and anxiety often melt away under the improvised caresses of these instruments. I've read some theories that sound is a form of touch, and that the slow and gentle vibrations made in delta waves are like a calming massage compared with the unbidden prods and jabs of city sounds. Either way, sound waves stimulate our bodies. They touch nerves and affect our perceptions, and they influence how we feel the world around us. Here in the train carriage, with my hearing suddenly healed, I can make a catalogue of the sounds around me. Most of them are soothing. The swishing of gum leaves, water trickling, the wings of fairy wrens, even my own enthusiastic singing. And I have to admit that I get nothing but happiness out of the cantankerous calls of the ravens and the native hens. Yet I also know that with effort you can identify some of the individual noises in a cityscape as well, and that this in itself can be a way of connecting with at least some of the moving parts that make up so much of modern life. Last time I was in Hobart I tried to walk around being mindful of the sonic environment. At one point a driver pulled up next to me, sliding his rubber tyres against the gutter. The squeaking of that friction reminded me of a skinny adolescent complaining, railing against his fate. And that, at least, helped me feel that I was part of things, which is about as much as I can hope for in such a place. And in fact, now that I think of it, I can recall a moment in one of the largest metropolises on the planet, when I had the ultimate sort of inspiration perhaps the kind Pythagoras and his mates were after. I was outside a metro station on a wet evening far away when someone yelled out a single, brief sentence in a language with which I was only vaguely acquainted. That night, amidst the chaos of the city, I instantly felt I understood something written once upon a time by James Joyce. God is a shout in the street. It was a hot summer's day some years ago and for whatever reason I decided to try and spend the day in silence. This seemed a simple enough practice but I lived in a share house with five other people and also I'd invited a handful of other mates around that day and I guess I didn't really have that much discipline on top of that. 
I did all right throughout the morning. At regular intervals, I'd disappear to my room upstairs to have a breather and refocus on the task at hand. On one of these retreats, I crouched over an old notepad with a pen and started to complain in a poem just how much noise everything else was making. There was no such thing as silence, I declared, and tried to put into writing everything I was hearing. Looking back on that piece of work, I seemed to have heard the following sounds. Skirt, yar, choo-choo-choo, niau, tip-tip, warm, lip-hoop. Obviously, I just couldn't transliterate any of the strange sounds that I heard. These were futile attempts to record what I was listening to, but the point was clear. My surroundings were full of noise, and it may be that they always are. Back downstairs, among friends, we started thinking about dinner plans. Does anyone want to come up to the shop with me? One maid asked, and I answered. I would, but... I stopped suddenly and shut up. It was too late. I'd broken my vow. My impulse to speak had been too strong. I just couldn't help myself. Now, in those days, I tended to be pretty hard on myself, so I wasn't pleased about failing to follow through on what I'd planned. But there had been a few lessons learned, mostly that it wasn't easy to keep quiet and that I probably shouldn't enter myself in a monastery just yet. But I also figured out that so little in the universe goes without making a sound of its own, and that if you concentrate closely enough, you could hear that we were within a strange symphony, layer upon layer of improvised noise, birds and machines and insects and wind. Human speech seems to have only a small part to play in this endless composition. It has little effect on the score. It plays a brief and plaintive cameo in the midst of myriad other instruments, like these native hens behind me. When I mentioned these observations to a friend, he showed me some recordings he'd found on the internet. If I remember correctly, these were sound grabs of supernovas, or some such stellar event of an equivalent grandeur. I'm not sure how the recordings were made, or where, or by whom, but I can assure you I have never heard anything that sounded to me more like a sonic account of the emotion of yearning. And as painful as it is to say this as a writer, no alphabet I've ever come upon has gotten close to reproducing the sounds I heard there. But also around that time, I got a job as a youth mentor of sorts and found myself having intense conversations with adolescents, hearing the stories of their lives. I was impressed by how the plainest speech could convey the most significant moments of a person's existence. That the curious syllables we use most frequently can, when arranged in a certain way, say ever so much. Language is a marvel. Every conversation is a miracle, a masterpiece wrought over thousands of years of linguistic evolution. 
But of course, in those interviews, it wouldn't do to prioritise paying attention to the sounds of those stories. There was a kind of tuning in that I had to quickly learn. For people know when they're not being properly heard. Teenagers, maybe most of all. In this, I suppose, was the subtle difference between hearing and listening. And there is no skill I have ever learned that I value higher. No talent that I wish to improve upon more than listening. It was also around this time that I became thoughtful about how I shared my own stories. From a very early age, I'd been interested in writing things down, in literature. But I was coming to realise that most of the world's storytelling was not a matter between pens and eyes, but between mouths and ears. Perhaps it all started when I discovered a language called Silbo Gomero, used by a community of shepherds on one of the Canary Islands. Speech comprised of a series of whistles which are flung across the island's narrow ravines. The more I looked into it, the more I figured that the art of narrating events had belonged throughout history mostly to those who were illiterate. And the fact was that it still is the case that stories still fall from the tongues of those who sit in taverns in the evenings, buskers in the marketplace, fortune tellers in tea houses, farmers leaning on fence posts sports commentators, elderly couples at breakfast. Everywhere there are campfire yarns, the declamations of slam poets and bush poets, the verses of wandering balladeers and troubadours, opera arias and theatrical monologues, and of course the map of songs which spun stories across the Australian continent, not to mention the infinite network of children's stories which span the globe, and intertwine at strange and unexpected locations, joining in on unlikely themes. In the small city of San Cristobal de las Casas in Chiapas, southern Mexico, I watched a man and a woman in a bar on a Thursday night going back and forth with the stories. My Spanish was and is imperfect, so I had to concentrate intently to understand what it was they were saying. Even missing half a dozen words in every sentence, I was able to get the gist of most of what was related. The full room laughed and cheered and relished every punchline as the pair of storytellers overlapped their tales with one another. But at one point, perhaps at some command that I didn't comprehend, the tellers at the front of the room fell silent and so did everyone else. Chiapaneca existence rarely fell quiet, I thought, from my weeks in a hostel dormitory there. But suddenly the absence of sound enveloped the room. Perhaps it lasted but a second. Yet it felt like hours of howling nothingness. A stint in the abyss. Then in flew a bat. A sleek black flying rat with serrated wings and, if you look closely enough, a sarcastic grin. It zoomed around the room, swooping between wine glasses and over the elaborate hairstyles of some of the clients there. And in a flash, I realised what was happening. All sound was being converted into vision. The bat's high-pitched squeaks were returning to it and thus it made a map of the world around it, constantly revised, catching every object, 
fixed or in movement, recalibrating it instantaneously as it raced around us. It saw all the roaring of the world, the scooter that zipped past, the bus leaning awkwardly into a corner, the vendor shouting to promote his barbecued corn, the dropped glass smashing on the cement floor, friends whispering in the corner of the room, siblings arguing, lovers kissing, a parrot chirping privately to itself, a busker with her violin on the far side of the plaza, and the great rushing of monsoon rain as it tore through the clouds suddenly and onto the street, the glass and metal of the cars out there upon the broad leaves of the avenue's trees and the clothes and the umbrellas of pedestrians, on the pavement and on the roof of the bar, down the gutters, into the drain, down beneath us all.